I'm Benjamin Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. And I'm Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. You're listening to Rational Security on the ER podcast feed. For more of our columns and exclusive Lawfare content, read us at foreignpolicy.com. Can I help you? Hello, Facebook. I would like to buy Ed. Uh, where are you calling from? France. Oh, okay. Uh... Uh, what sort of ad would you like? I'd like to buy ad totally in favor of LGBT issues, but also not in favor of LGBT issues and other hot button issues. And how would you like to pay for I that? I have $100,000 in cash, or you could take Bitcoin. Excellent. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Boris and Natasha buy a Facebook ad edition. I'm Shane Harris, wayward reporter. I would totally be able to buy a Facebook ad if Russia can buy a Facebook ad. In fact, we've done it before. Uh, yeah, we've we've bought. It's a Facebook. very simple process. We've bought. Yeah, and, and and it allows you to micro-target your audience. When we've Ooh. when we've bought Facebook ads for Rational Security, we focus on you know people in the District of Columbia area who are interested in national security, like lawfare, and do all kinds of uh, stuff that are indicia of you know wanting. Do they to- buy me undies? Can we find that out? Uh, no, MeUndies does not sponsor Lawfare, does not advertise with us. So we urge people to buy Hanes, Hanes. underwear. Or Calvin Klein. Good old-fashioned stiff Hanes underwear. I just want to know if you can do the rest of the episode in your accent. I could totally do it. Okay, that's right. We're going to on show how, how long Shane's accent can hold today. More fake news for you to put in your ears. I'm here in the Wait, jungle. did someone say Putin? Putin. Too many beans, I'm Putin. <laughs> Sorry, I was just bathroom humor. All right, here we go. Shame. I'm Shane's here. a little punchy today. <laughs> I'm here in the Hermitage studio with... <laughs> Special guest, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. <laughs> who's, who's on rational security today. Wouldn't that be awesome if she came here for her book launch? Yes. Yeah, we it's totally plausible. tried to get her. She's been like on... She was on Pod Save America. She's been... Yeah, she's been doing every other... I, I was Podcasting. like hanging out with her communications director recently, but there was no offer. I should have asked her, actually. Drop the ball, Shane. I know. It's because okay. of the accent. Mr. Chance. <laughs> she, would, she would have totally engaged this with, way. Yeah, she would have yeah, done the accent. She would with have totally you. done it. Uh, but no, but I am here with um, even better than Hillary Clinton, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi, hey. Shane. Uh, today on podcast, Facebook <laughs> confirms that a Russian troll farm bought ads during the election cycle. Congress pushes back on President Trump's plan to gut foreign aid and the State Department. And Equifax, the credit rating agency, suffers a massive data breach. Um, Redefines massive, I think. Yeah, just when you think they couldn't get any bigger or worse, they sure do. Such the times we live in. Um, Let's talk about this Facebook report. Calling it a report, actually, that came out last week might be overstating it. Um, The Facebook blog post which has been answering the the really burning question, I mean that truly burning question, about whether or not Russia interfered on social media platforms and used fake ads or skewed information or uh, sort of propaganda uh, to stir people up in the election and whether this was targeted at people based on their perceived preferences on certain policy issues. So Facebook came back and said, yes, we found that this well-known Russian troll farm uh, based in Russia uh, spent $100,000 on ads, uh, and they presented that finding 
to the Senate Intelligence Committee and to the House as well, which are investigating Russia. Um, I think safe to say uh, senators were not really impressed and we have many, many more questions. Um, so, Susan, maybe let me start with you. I mean, from the standpoint of uh, both what Facebook found and uh, the kind of reaction to it from senators, it seems like this is kind of the tip of the iceberg and that there's a much longer conversation that we're going to have about how exactly Russia used Facebook and Twitter and other platforms. Yeah, so it's an interesting story, but the interesting part is all sort of like the the subtext or the possible undercurrents here. Like the actual information in and of itself, I think, is less significant than people are making of it. Um, so, so just sort of taking the ads on their face. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, oh, this is a crime. You know, you, you aren't allowed to foreign nationals aren't allowed to um, uh, to buy political advertising in a federal election under the Federal Elections Campaign Act, FICA, which is a terrible acronym Ugh. for a uh, for a law. That's uh, like there's just not enough information to answer that question. People have been speculating that these secure democracy ads were part of it. That's not really clear to me. In order to violate the law, it actually has to reference a, a an actual candidate or reference a particular election. Facebook sort of came out and said the vast majority majority, I think, yeah, the, the vast majority of ads didn't specifically reference the U.S. presidential election voting or a particular candidate. That's their way of saying the vast majority were not in violation of, uh, of any law or at least not of FICA. So whether or not there's sort of uh, that, that initial uh, legal hurdle is there, and of course, the vast majority is not all. So there's, there is the question of whether or not there was criminal activity. But sort of on its face, eh, $100,000, it, it buys you a lot of ads. But relative to the scope of campaign advertising, the scope of sort of uh, ordinary campaign budgets, I mean, it'd be interesting to know what Trump and Clinton campaigns spent on their own Facebook advertising. My guess is we're well into the millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, how significant that is. I think what's more interesting, at least, um, are sort of our two features. One is the behavior of social media companies and companies like Facebook themselves that appear to be trying to take a proactive position here. So you have members of Congress that are focused on this question of social media and was it used and bots and they don't really understand. They don't know, they don't necessarily know what happened. They don't really understand the platforms. So you can wait for Congress to come to you and say, here's a subpoena or here's what we want you to produce. You risk it being sort of overbroad or you can go looking yourself. Um, I think sort of reading between the lines of Facebook statements, they're saying, hey, we went looking ourselves and, and we tried to have sort of a broad search and this is what we came up with. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what... Um sort of Twitter and other sites, whether they follow suit. Then the other feature is this um, sort of intimation from primarily Senator Mark Warner. A little bit Adam Schiff has followed up, sort of intimating that, hey, the interesting thing here isn't necessarily that they bought the ads, but that the ads were targeted in a really sophisticated way, um, you know, that they were uh, targeting populations that even the candidates themselves, even the campaign themselves didn't understand that these were going to be the relevant uh, uh, groups. And and that sort of, uh, you know, gets like the conspiracy theory wheels going about, you know, this Cambridge Analytica data and possible collusion with the campaign and sort of all these other issues. Now, nothing has come out to substantiate that. And it's not clear from statements from, you know, ordinarily pretty responsible members of Congress whether or not they are saying this because they have some other piece of intelligence that is causing them to go down this path or whether or not it's just sort of a, a gut instinct, a box they want to check. But there, there actually isn't any evidence that there's not anything in Facebook's statement that says that it's anything other than they targeted 
people in the United States of America or people sort of in regular swing states. Um, so certainly Congress is going to have more questions. Um, uh, Facebook has gotten out in front and we'll see whether or not they live to regret it because they have a bunch more questions. Um, uh, but, but super interesting, but, but more complex than it's reading on its face, I think. I guess this is one of the things I'm puzzled by is like, okay, I understand the instinct of Facebook to want to get out ahead of this. And I also think that it's worth putting this in the context of the broader emerging debate about these social media platforms as public utilities, as opposed to just, you know, companies offering services and whether they should be more heavily regulated. So I think that increases the incentive for Facebook to try and put itself forward as a good public actor, right? But why put out something that's so thin? Like, inevitably, it was going to beg more questions than it answered in it, in the form in which they released it. Why not wait, do more research, be prepared to answer those questions, and put out a more comprehensive report? Well, because I think they don't want to, right? I mean, it seems to me that Facebook has 100,000 reasons not to reveal that the Russians have infiltrated its platform and are using it for information operations. I mean... It, it, what struck me about it, too, in the report was that they were seeming to go out of their way to bound it very carefully by region, saying, well, we found this thing in Russia. I mean, never mind that most hackers would not operate out of their home country. They didn't seem to say anything about other places that they may have been operating. And they kind of went out of their way, too, to make it seem like, oh, but it wasn't favoring one candidate or another. It was pro and anti on LGBT and pro and anti on the Second Amendment. But then they didn't release the ads, so we don't know, like... What was the spread? You know, was there like one pro gay marriage <laughs> ad and ninety nine anti? We don't we so, don't really know that. I also think that a lot of, you know, people are are missing what to me is the central importance of this story, which is not specifically about the way the Russians were using Facebook. Um, it is about the way this story situates within the larger pattern of Russian activity vis-a-vis -vis the 2016 election, which is to say that through the fall of 2015 uh, there and into January of 2016, the Trump organization is trying to negotiate a deal while, the, while Trump is running for president for Trump Tower Moscow. During this period, there is a public dance of bromance between the, the president of Russia and the, the then Republican candidate for president, Donald Trump. Over the succeeding four to six months, there are a series of approaches uh, and contacts between the campaign uh, and the the Trump organization and Russia, Russian officials and entities where they're sort of sussing each other out. This culminates in the Trump Tower meeting in uh, the spring of 2016, uh, where the Russian government is explicit that they're offering help to the Trump campaign. And following that meeting, there are a series of pieces of help given. Uh, the release of Hillary Clinton's emails through WikiLeaks, uh, the story, the, uh, the uh, uh, and now we have seen as well a set of targeted social media uh, activities by Russian troll farms uh, in 
including on Facebook, exactly as hypothesized. And so I think if you look at it in the context of the larger pattern of Russian engagement with the 2016 campaign, it does look a lot larger than a relatively small ad buy uh, and $100,000 is a small ad buy on a single social media platform. And so I would ask the question, you know, what other tiles of a larger mosaic is this a piece of? In other words, the questions were just being asked too narrowly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, right? It's it's indication. It, it does raise like it just it raises more and more questions which is kind of what we've seen on every thread that gets pulled on this investigation there's just more and more and more questions which is why that congressional report that puts out lots of details is going to be so incredibly important did you guys during the election ever see an ad or a story that in retro at the time or in retrospect you thought was fake that seems to fit the description of the kind of on facebook or just in general yeah i don't get my news from facebook shane (laughs) i read the wall street journal exclusively I, did, I, I i was actually asked about one by a family member who said why aren't you reporting on the news that the tor- that the uh protesters at the dakota access pipeline site have been locked in cages and are being tortured by federal authorities oh wow and when i said where did you see this they said well it's on facebook so i i, I mean s- believed it as if he had seen it on cnn i uh-huh. saw lots of information uh on facebook that was fake um, like the Pope I, endorsing Trump and stuff yeah. like that. Well, just lots of lots lots of garbage that had nothing to do with the truth. I don't think any of it showed up organically in my Facebook feed. Um, but that's a, I think, a reflection of. It's because you choose your friends so carefully. <laughs> but let's uh, let's well, actually go point. back to sort of that period in kind of early May, June before the election, when the major Facebook scandal was allegations that they had censored um, whenever they were doing sort of the newsfeed highlight recommendations right. that they had censored conservative viewpoints right, that they were right. deliberately <laughs> skewing it in right. An and Congress, direction. you know, uh, Senator Thune, the the Commerce Committee, you know, they they brought. Facebook up to, you know, to, to meet with the committee and, and give testimony. And that was the big conservative issues, you know, just a few months before the election was whether or not conservatives voices were being uh, overly censored. And that's actually why Facebook eliminated uh, human uh, like human editors. Right. And, and uh, implemented these AI, uh, uh, you know, or algorithmic based screens. So it's also interesting to think, well, did that have anything to do with information getting through that might not otherwise have. I think when all of this is finally fully investigated, we will discover that Facebook's AI algorithms became self-aware <laughs> sometime in late October and 2016. Trumpists. And they're Trumpists. Skynet was activated. We <laughs> yes. just we all missed it. <laughs> all right. Um, let's talk about our next story. Congress, you remember that other branch of government, uh, has something to say about the Trump administration's plans for USAID foreign policy, State Department restructuring um, tomorrow. They have words. They have words. They have strong words. So, you know, we're in the we're in the middle of the endless and incomplete congressional uh, appropriations process. And uh, earlier this summer, the House of Representatives marked up its version of uh, the money it wants to allocate to the State Department and USAID, that is U.S. foreign aid. Um, And basically, it was pretty clean. It cut 
it cut the budget, although not quite as much as Trump wanted, but it didn't have a lot to say about the substance. Last week, the Senate came out with its markup of the bill, uh, the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee responsible for foreign operations, I should say. This is chaired by one Lindsey Graham, <clears throat> who has some very strong views on the U.S. role in the world that have often clashed with the president. And um, it is a striking repudiation of the budget that President Trump submitted uh, and the message um, that that budget sends the language of the committee report, um, and I'll just read you a couple sentences here so you can get a flavor of how, you know, uh, no holds barred the criticism of the administration is from a Republican Senate committee. Um, that the lessons learned since September 11th, 2001, include the reality that defense alone does not provide for American strength and resolve abroad. Battlefield technology and firepower cannot replace diplomacy and development. The administration's apparent doctrine of retreat, which also includes distancing the United States from collective and multilateral dispute resolution frameworks, serves only to weaken America's standing in the world. Mm. And so Trump had proposed cuts to state and foreign aid of about 30 uh, percent, taking the level down to 40 million. The, the committee uh, put down a mark of 51 million dollars, which is just about last year. In other words, we're not changing anything for you, buddy. Moreover, the report requires some it, it puts in place some very strict requirements for Secretary Tillerson before he can implement any reorganization, he has to report to the committee, he has to consult with the committee, um, and they're requiring him to produce a report that he had announced he didn't want to produce, which is a diplomacy and development review. Um, so it's really kind of tightening the screws. I think there are two things that are worth noting about this heavy, heavy pushback from the Senate. One is um, this was one of the places where I think we've seen the most universal mobilization of kind of the foreign policy establishment against a Trump administration policy approach. You had everyone from uh, retired generals, um, NGOs that implement foreign assistance who obviously have a direct interest, um, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, Bill Gates, like everybody you could imagine. Um, repudiating this Trump plan, speaking out publicly about the harm that these cuts would do to American interests and American national security. Um, and so it really was like the, the, the establishment saying no, drawing a line in the sand and Lindsey Graham fully on board with saying no. Um, and it's very, very hard to see, given the intensity and breadth of that sentiment, how this pushback isn't going to survive the overall appropriations process. The House is not going to save Trump on this one. The second thing I think is worth noting is that there's a brewing showdown in the Senate language um, over spending rules. Uh, so there have been kind of rumors floating for a while uh, that the Trump administration might just refuse to spend money allocated by Congress, appropriated by Congress for foreign aid and the State Department. If they want to shrink it, they're going to shrink it. Can and, you do that? Well, a very interesting question, Aww. Shane. 
Um, so it turns out that Nixon tried to do this. Uh, oh, that's a great precedent. <laughs> yeah, it's a great precedent. <laughs> I just keep going back to that boy, well, oh man. <laughs> and, uh, Couldn't, like, find Polk or somebody else. Chester <laughs> Arthur. Grover Cleveland, God. right? Um, and so in 1974, Congress passed uh, the Budget Control and Impoundment Act that, that explicitly constrains the executive branch's ability to just sequester money and not spend it. Um, it's been tested a bit in the courts, uh, but the the folks on the Hill who are responsible for foreign aid in the State Department are really worried because um, the administration nominated as Undersecretary of State for Management, in other words, the guy in charge of the budget, uh, a former Senate Budget Committee staffer um, who is an expert in the budget rules. And he had his nomination hearing last week, in addition to the markup happening last week. And so they used this opportunity to quiz him really closely about whether he would commit to them to spend money as appropriated by Congress under the 1974 law. And I would say, like a good nominee, he sought to reassure without committing. (laughs) And he said, well, as you know... Um, appropriations are always a conversation between the president and the Congress. And assuming that they agree on how these things go forward, I would, of course, uh, spend the money according to the law, which is not quite, yes, I will commit to spending money according to the law. So I I think there is still a real possibility that the Trump administration is going to try and use whatever loopholes it can find to just not spend money and that's going to increase what is already significant uh, Republican congressional mistrust of the administration on foreign policy. Do you think considering that this sort of thwarts, you know, I mean, Tillerson's big plan was to reorganize the State Department, cut these things. I mean, we've heard rumors of his exit. Then all of a sudden he's like next to the president, Camp David. Do you think that this hastens his exit or has no impact? Like, do you think it'll it'll have any bearing on that? Well, so if he feels like the reason he came to Washington was to straighten up that State Department and then he was going to go back home to Texas, it's worth asking, like, is he going to be able to do that? But I think that we we probably won't see how this fully plays out in law uh, that gets, you know, enacted and signed until the end of the year. Because with the with the agreement um, between uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and the president last week, we're going to have a continuing resolution on spending for the next for the first three months of the fiscal year. And these appropriations aren't actually going to get enacted until December. So two additional uh, thoughts on this that are I, you know maybe interesting. So Susan and I have been working on a book about the the Trump presidency and sort of the historical presidency in connection with the current president. And in that light, I read two things that uh, recently that uh, were um, sort of interesting in this regard. So one is uh, Arthur Schlesinger's discussion of uh, the period of congressional control of foreign policy uh, leading up to World War II and how assertive Congress was in sort of controlling the direction of foreign policy and how the abject failure of that really led in material respects to what we now think of as the imperial presidency. But the second uh, element, and and Schlesinger's account of this is as a very bad period in in you know that showed the need for like strong executive leadership in foreign policy, um, and 
The second was a really provocative op-ed by Bob Kagan in the Washington Post um, citing the same period uh, as a model for the current uh, right. period. Right? So can, Congress isn't going to impeach Trump, uh, Kagan argues. Um, but they can handcuff but, him. But they can handcuff him in yeah. a thousand ways. And so Bob makes the the case quite quite strongly for what he calls congressional government. Uh, and I think there's a – like between the two, I would urge everybody to sort of pull your copy of the imperial presidency. Because everybody's got their copy of just the imperial presidency. Just on their presidency. beds. Yeah, you know, like uh, you know, a lot of <laughs> our actually listeners do. actually do have <laughs> copies of the imperial presidency, as you do. Um, and you should pull them up and read the, read the chapter about the post-Lincoln uh, drift toward congressional power and how that – how that lessened uh, uh, and 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 sort of uh, paralyzed the federal government leading up to uh, World War II, and uh, or sort of particularly post Wilson. And so the um, the the question that this raises to me is: Are we sort of caught between the rock and the hard place? Right. The, on the one hand, you know, we want strong executive leadership in foreign policy. That's uh, you know. On the other hand, we don't want uh, Trump's instincts, and for that matter, in this case, Tillerson's instincts about how to organize foreign policy. And so you end up with really two bad options here and picking your poison between them. Yeah, although I would say the difference here is that we are talking about appropriations, which is a core power of the legislative sure. branch. And the idea that um, the growth of executive power should extend to such a reach that it can just say to Congress, no, I'm not going to use that money and you can't make me do it. That does seem to me to cross right. no, a no, line. I, I, I have no doubt that Congress has the authority to uh, ask, you know, to appropriate money and expect that it be spent and at a minimum to, uh, you know, use its copious uh, powers to make sure that happens. Um, the But <laughs> Bob's argument for congressional government and for a very assertive Congress in the foreign policy space goes considerably further than that. And if you look at the um, uh, bill that Congress passed effectively over the president's veto on sanctions, that was not an appropriations bill, right? That right. was a, you know, a you like Russia too much, so we're setting policy kind of bill. And And I think a lot of us are eager for Congress to be more assertive in areas up to and including, but not limited to the Appropriations Department. Uh, and there, you know, I think Schlesinger's discussion is a reminder that there are, you know, some important potential collateral costs to having a weak presidency in foreign policy. I mean, there's also sort of an interesting process question here, and that's that these, you know, appropriations and authorizations bills don't just like appear in a cabbage patch somewhere. They are <laughs> created through this really, really intensive and collaborative process between agencies and, you know, committees of jurisdiction um, and, and sort of in, in both the patronage, you know, what do you need? 
need funded and also the, you know, waste, fraud and abuse oversight accountability. You're not doing what we want. And so one of the things that sort of that I'd be curious to know is what did that process look like between the State Department's Legislative Affairs Office and the committees? Was it something that looked rather different than what Secretary Tillerson's message might have been because it's career staff? Well, or was is, it? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And actually, the committee report that goes along with the marked up bill makes clear that from the committee's perspective, there was no input by the relevant state and USAID offices into the budget that the president submitted and that they didn't get to play the role that they should have played. And so it's enforcing Tillerson to do this diplomacy and development review and submit reports to Congress. It's basically telling him, no, you have to go back and do this the way we like doing it. You have to go talk to your people. You have to go talk to your people and you can't just hire an outside <clears throat> consultant to pretend to talk to your people and then write a that's report some, for uh, you. That's some pretty killer oversight right there. <laughs> it, sure, it sure is. Congress flexing that muscle. All right. If you have ever applied for a mortgage, a credit card, a lease, what else? What are other reasons? Participated in the U.S. economy. In any way. In any way as a sentient being. Um, chances then are... Then Equifax has lost your data. Equifax <laughs> has lost your information. Uh, Equifax, one of the big three credit rating agencies, <clears throat> which everyone here I'm sure is familiar with, um, reported that they have suffered a massive breach of customer data. Um, we kind of, I think, in, in some ways get a little bit numb to, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit numb to these uh, revelations. You know, Yahoo loses 500 million customers' passwords and information. LinkedIn loses a bunch. This one strikes me as more significant because of the just central role that Equifax plays in your ability to be a functioning person in society and the credit rating information that they have about you that is extremely sensitive that goes to the money that you have the money that you spent the money that you may or may not have paid back also in addition to all of your social security numbers. also in a different sense i think you know i agree with all of that but i you know i think there's an added sense in which this is sort of particularly disturbing you know when home depot loses a whole lot of data there it's data of people who have some business relationship for with Home Depot and like they bought some plywood once yeah. and here's their credit card right. number. So credit, what you're saying is they're asking number. for it. Well, it's 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 not that. It's that there it, it it's that there's a to some degree an assumption of risk in doing business with a, with a particular company that you're you're making a decision how much Choice. do I trust CVS to mm-hmm. to hold my my uh, my prescription data, right? And you do that with some degree of awareness of the fact that data breaches happen. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying they don't have an obligation to protect data. They do. Um, but there's some relationship with their own customers. And this is Equifax being, uh, you know, irresponsible and losing control of data of people who they, uh, you know, amass this data largely against the will of uh, the individuals in question. Or They're not maybe without the knowledge, I think, yeah. against the will is a little strong, given that everybody signs agreements to let companies go get their data. No, no but the, when, when did you ever sign an agreement with Equifax that allowed that, that authorized them 
I, I have never given but Equifax. Whenever you, you're whenever you're you open, whenever you opened a bank account, compulsory. you authorized the bank yeah. to report information into a system. Whenever you got your mortgage, exactly. you authorized. Right. I mean, I, I, so I've I have a relate I have a relationship with my it's bank. It's effectively compulsory. Equi- Equifax yeah. cannot produce a document where I gave them consent to do anything, much less give my data to Vladimir Putin. Um, and if you know, and. I think you can play that out 136 million times. Nobody feels like they have a trust relationship with Equifax. And Equifax is the ultimate example of something where you are not the customer, you are the subject. No, I think that's right. And it has two implications. One is that um, you also aren't able to decide, no, I'm going to trust one of the other companies because they have safer practices instead of Equifax. So right. there, there is literally no ability for consumers to you know, exercise uh, sort of market forces here. Um, the other issue is the legal one, whether or not, like, is there a fiduciary duty? There's not a contractual duty that's right. direct. And so um, there's going to be big, big legal questions here about whether or not Equifax also has an obligation to make people whole, or if they're in the weird, magical position of being able to have all your data, being able to lose all your data, but also not having any legal responsibilities towards you. This I think, is the, I, I, the recourse question to me is a really, really interesting and right now very troubling one. I mean, just speaking as a relatively naive consumer you know, that the company's initial response was, well, we'll give you a year of free credit monitoring, which is what what they provide to everybody else. And you have to sign away your right Mm. to sue, which then they backtracked on. But I think that that the nature of the data that was lost here, the sensitivity of it and the essentiality of the centrality of it to one's ability to function in the modern economy, in a credit driven economy, is such that there there i think consumers will demand some more comprehensive kind of recourse or reparation like is it completely unrealistic to think that congress might pass legislation directing the social security administration to give all these people new social security numbers like that would be that would be a useful fix but it, even that, and I think that is the kind of fix we're going to see, even that is actually, I think it's the likely fix and it's a bad one, right? This is a good example of why using things like social security numbers to validate identity, yeah. a system that was not created for people to validate their identity is, right? And so I, I agree, Congress isn't going to go back and say, huh, we've constructed this massive system <laughs> in a way that doesn't make any sense, sort of, certainly not in like the new information technology age, but just it doesn't make sense kind of from the get-go. I mean, the other thing is that this is, the other reason I think there is going to be congressional action is this has been like a slow-moving exercise in how not, how a company should not handle a massive data breach. They Don't learn about say that it. with every company's data breach? But this one really, I mean, it takes the cake in being so inept. They, I don't know, uh, Sony was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't, you're right, they discover it. They didn't notify uh, their customers for over a month. You know, a little bit of a delay excusable, but not really. Whenever they do notify, it's 148 million, million, but they actually don't know the real numbers. We know that usually the way these things work is upon further investigation, it's a much larger breach. 
they set up these sites that were so in order for people to verify whether or not they were compromised that one put people at risk of phishing because it was like Equifax 2017. So guess what? Now there's Equifax 2019 and right every other sort of fake site for people to enter in their data. And, you know, all these um, journalists have have shown that, like, if you put in name and the last four of your socials, one, two, three, four, it says you've been breached. And so, like, every part, they didn't even offer, um, you know, the credit monitoring and credit freeze. They were charging for it originally, right? So buy our services uh, in order to protect yourself. Now they've been sort of shamed into into offering free credit freezes. Um, But just, I mean, absolutely everything. Their, uh, Their CEO selling his stock in the days after this breach had been discovered before yeah, well, it was although that, uh, that may there may be criminal remedies yeah. associated right. with that that well, that's that's a really bad act let's let's address briefly here <coughs> the national security implications you know real possible of this breach i mean it seems to me that if you just take for instance that opm was breached now i guess a couple of years ago and there are millions and millions of <clears throat> current and former government employees whose personal information is now in the hands of a foreign government pouring this information into such a matrix could be potentially quite useful not just because it has their social security number but it has their financial information as well if you're looking for leverage points this is a really good place to go you know if that. the russian government wants to take over my mortgage they're welcome <laughs> to it <clears throat> don't start talking to shane about the russian government or he'll go start using that accent again <laughs> i liked it i thought it was a refreshing change are you interested in refinancing <laughs> So look, can I can I just say that 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 I think there is an obvious remedy here um, for before we turn to the national security implications, and I think it's that all the plaintiffs' lawyers who are going to uh, try to get into court on uh, on theories that are actually going to raise significant legal issues in, uh, instead should instead uh, simply lawfully collect comparable data to what Equifax disclosed on all Equifax employees and store that data in insecure manner. Uh, and so thereby expose Equifax and its employees to damage parallel to the ones and that Equifax exposed uh, their clients to. And, uh, and I think if, Equi- if people began doing that, Equifax would quickly settle uh, uh, I like it. It's sort of a Hammurabi's code. Of, well, presumably uh, Equifax employees are in breach. Equifax's databases. Uh, yeah, but but well, that that that's presumably right. Um, but I think I think the you know the question of what data you can obtain about Equifax and disclose mm. against its will, but mm. lawfully, is actually a mm. good way to think. It, you know, the other word for this is journalism, um, <laughs> and. Uh, but I think, you know, exposing Equifax's practices and, you know, taking, you know, a very large pound of flesh out of the company by disclosing information about it is, you know, really part of the solution to this. All right. So, Ben, what are the national security implications of this? You know, big data matrices involving lots and lots of data points. These are different data points than are going to be on people's SF-86s. And, uh, you know, I think particularly if you're thinking about those people who are in security-oriented positions whom you've already got their OMB data. You're starting now, if you're the Chinese or the Russians uh, or whoever may have that data, to be able to compile some really, really compelling 
uh, accounts of, you know, who's uh, who's targetable and by what means. It's it's interesting. You know, we've talked several times um, driven by different events about the bar to entering public service and how that bar keeps getting higher and higher. For example, if you have to go through the Senate confirmation process and how miserable and politicized that's become, the amount you have to disclose to get through White House ethics, you know, rules under the Obama administration. We've we've talked about this in several ways, but this is one we haven't talked about, which is that if you're a young person, you know, thinking about taking a job in the intelligence community, you're not now just thinking about like, do I have family members living overseas or how is this going to constrain my international travel or my ability to publish uh, down the road? You're now also thinking about like, is everything about my personal life and financial life going to be exposed publicly to other people who might try to blackmail me about it? And that's, you know, that's that's a whole other level of barrier to entry into public service that we're not thinking about. By the way, one other element, the more data points you have in this, the more data elements you have in this profile, the easier it is to construct really, really compelling spear phishing attacks, uh, either against that person as a target or posing as that person as the sender. And, you know, imagine getting an email from your wife about your mortgage that refers to, you know, prior addresses that you've collectively lived at or the car that you jointly own Um, and to elements of your job. Now think the SF-86 and you start bringing in those elements and you can get pretty compelling pretty fast. All right. I'm going back to cash. Okay. there's an even um, potentially an even more direct impact for national security and that that massive, massive data breaches like this will have dramatic impact on U.S. sort of economic position and economic security. And those are you know, those are important issues. It's areas in which we've started to focus on it in relation to sort of Chinese economic espionage and sort of other areas. And and this is the next big frontier that we're going to have to address that um, I I think it would not be shocking if this breach turns out to be state sponsored. We don't we don't know anything about the potential perpetrators here. Um, But, you know, these are the kinds of issues of, you know, causing major economic harm to the United States. It is itself a security risk. It is uh, it is itself a national security issue that the government is going to have to start addressing. So Equifax is becoming critical infrastructure. Oh God! Like it, like an electricity. There's like company? nothing like no. uh, we'll achieve like the singularity. Like there will right. be nothing all left that is not critical. Right. Because because all those I mean, efforts have really paid off in the past exactly. fifteen years. Too. By the right. way, people right. are going to people are going to make fun of me about this for saying this, and you're going to roll your eyes. But one person who looks really good in all of this. Uh, former president Tomas Ilvis of Estonia, who your favorite president? Yeah, my favorite. I wish he were our president. Uh, who started years and years ago thinking about what a state-backed digital identity looks like and how you can use it to prevent things like identity theft and allow for uh, you know uh, authoritative identity verification. And you know that's what we should be talking about in this context. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Susan, you have an object slash announcement, and then Ben has an object. I have a fun object lesson. It is an event 
upcoming. Uh, it's September 26th in Lawfare and Foreign Policy. We just started this partnership. Um, we're doing our first live event together. Uh, there will be booze. There will be former White House counsels. And I think that and this booze. What a is combo. really the sweet spot for the rational security <laughs> listener. Um, and I say that with, with love and affection, that A.B. <laughs> Call the House and Bob Bauer and also a healthy amount of alcohol is what you have been crying out for. Um, and you can... And barbecue. And barbecue. Um, and Ben has agreed to bring the baby cannon, although probably not fire the baby cannon. Um, and uh, you can get tickets on... We have an announcement on Lawfare. FP has an announcement. We'll be incessantly tweeting about it. So come. Yeah, we'd love to meet you. Ben. Uh, so speaking of Baby Cannon, I have a Baby Cannon after action report. Aww. Uh, baby lab- Cannon is growing up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, so a week and a half ago, uh, several people in, who are currently sitting in the Jungle Studio spent an astonishing amount of time stuffing envelopes with little Baby Cannon pins and mailing them out to all of you who sent contributions uh, to Lawfare in response to my tweet about baby cannon lapel pins. Uh, if you are one of those people, uh, thank you, because we that was a really fun little thing, and and we actually raised some raised some money for Lawfare. And uh, so tweet a picture of yourself wearing the baby cannon pin, and tweet it to hashtag Baby Cannon Society, because uh, you know. Uh, Love the idea of 300 people out there wearing baby cannon pins. Has anyone sent you their own baby cannon videos? Oh, people are tweeting baby cannon videos at me all the time. Yeah, and the pyromaniacs. It's a movement. The lucky guy uh, down in Florida who makes baby cannon has been doing a brief brisk business. Have you talked to him? uh, I have emailed with him. That's great. And he's. uh, Are you on his Christmas card list? (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's just say I don't endorse a lot of products, but I do endorse that one. (laughs) He might be our first unofficial sponsor. One other product that I that I do endorse, and I just want to say a brief word about this because um, I think it's super cool. Uh, there is a uh, individual who uh, who tweets under the hashtag at Revolution Art Two. Uh, who uh, she is a she's an artist who does uh, designs for uh, on behalf of causes that she uh, finds compelling, and she uh, uh, on her own initiative. Uh, made a, I think, quite gorgeous Order of the Baby Cannon uh, design and uh, put it on a whole bunch of uh, shirts and pillows and other merchandise, that, uh, really cool stuff, and um, is uh, donating proceeds of it uh, to Lawfare. And uh, so I have tweeted about it. You can find... Um, I want to just give her a shout out. It's really cool of you to do that. And, uh, and I urge everybody to check out uh, the, uh, the site where she, where she did it. We'll put a link to it on, on, our, on the Rational Security page. And so support her, support Lawfare, and join the Order of the Baby Cannon. This is the good social media can do. It's a good story. All right, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our webpage. Follow us on Facebook, of course. Find us on Twitter at 
R-A-T-L security. Uh, whenever you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher, please leave a five canon review. <laughs> boom. Boom, 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 boom. One, two, three, four. Yeah, that was five. Leave that many booms and your reviews. It's really been a great uh, uh, help to us as we spread the word about the podcast. Our show's audio engineer today was Matthew Kahn. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia. Our music is performed this week by Mark Zuckerberg and the Propaganda Players. Nice. Good. Good, good, good. <laughs> and the show this week was not brought to you by Helix Sleep. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so buy, buy a mattress at your local mattress store. <laughs> On behalf of Sophia Yan, our actual music provider, uh, and my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We talk to you next week. Paka. <laughs> <laughs>